to listen to some of the people who have ridden with me, you wouldn't know that I haven't gotten very many traffic tickets. I have gotten very few uh, traffic tickets, to tell you the truth. And the deal is, is that uh, I don't really know why, uh, given the number of times I've been pulled over. Uh, I think, and this is just an opinion, uh, is that I have the gift of gab. And a lot of policemen would uh, just let me go rather than listen to me anymore. So the, uh, the situation is, is that uh, I don't get very many of them. Uh, but one night, I'm, I'm going home, and it's, uh, you know, I've been here. In fact, I did a funeral that day. And after doing that funeral, what happened was, is that I, I'm, a policeman is behind me. It's dark, and, and, he, and he pulls me over. And I'm going, I don't even understand why he's pulled me over. And he pulled me over, and he said, your, your rear taillights are out. Well, I didn't know your, how do you know your taillights are out? I mean, if you've got an older car and it doesn't light up, you know what I'm talking about, when one of your taillights is out, how do you know your taillights are out? I mean, you have to have somebody tell you, don't you? He gave me a full-blown ticket for that. I mean, I was going, why do I get a full-blown ticket for something that it's actually impossible for me to know because I don't follow myself when I'm driving. You understand? And so the situation, in fact, I don't drive fast enough to catch up with myself. And so the, uh, the, the thing is, is that he gave me a ticket. Now, the, that has to be revealed to you. There has to be somebody. In fact, my son-in-law borrowed one of my vehicles, and he said, uh, I was, uh, a friend of mine said that you have a, a couple of your taillights out. And, I, and so we went and bought the taillights, we put them in. And the reason was is because his friend was following him, and that's how you find out. It is revealed to you. Well, there's other things in our lives that need to be revealed to us. And one of those things is something that we shouldn't think that needs to be revealed to us. And that is, is that God needs to be revealed to us, even to believers. So many times I hear from believers and they have got this picture of God as that he is powerless to do anything about something that is going on in the world, something that's going on in the nation, something that's going on somewhere. And they they give God this powerlessness. They say the trend is going this way and what we're going to see in the church in the future is we're going to have, and they go with all of this stuff as if God doesn't care about his church and if God doesn't, as if God doesn't have any power to stop things. And if you look through history, you will find that there are many times that God has brought in revivals in order to turn things back and and basically give a little bit longer for people to understand the gospel before Jesus will return someday. That's really what's going on. And so they, 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 they think, well, you know, God needs to be revealed to them in order to say that he's here today. And once, here's the thing, and once we've started to fail to realize that he's present with us, especially in church, and like I said, he doesn't, he doesn't stop at the door of the church and say, I won't go in there. You know, he's everywhere. And then, and then when we start to realize the lack of his presence, we start to recognize the lack of his work. And when we start recognizing the lack of his work, then we will also fail to act. We fail to do what God wants us to do. Because God has chosen us as a people to be his, his hands and his feet and his, and his voice and, and, and all of those things that, that, that are there in order to do what? To reveal himself to the world. This is what we're, we're around here for. We're revealing the Lord to the, to the world. So as I go into this scripture, and this scripture here, maybe the most, I realize I'm at the end of the problem of the most theological book in the New Testament. And I'm probably reading the most theological verses today uh, in the, the New Testament. Just wanted you to hear these words. And, and a lot of people, they skip over these words. And this is what blows my mind as I got into the depth of this word. Let's go into Romans chapter 16, verse 25. 
It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, you've noticed here, I'm rereading verse 25. We did verse 25 last week. So don't think that, you know, no, the pastor really has lost it now. He's gone back and he's just preaching last week's uh, message all over again. That's not it. You see, I wanted to get the whole thought in here because Paul is, is bringing forth a doxology. A doxology is a praise of a set of praise words. He's praising God through all of this. And see, then these words that are here are more than just, uh, are just uh, more than just words in a song in terms of what we, we uh, call the doxology. These are truths that remind us of what we believe. So we're going to really dig into this word this morning and, and look and see what it's talking about. The revelation, how God has revealed himself and uh, how this all comes about. So it, it says here, it says, it says the word, it says that this revelation, one that we have of salvation, that was kept secret for long ages. And what it's saying there is, is that the plan of salvation has always been in existence. When you have those words for the long ages that are there, they're not concerned about the time between Adam and Moses or between Adam and, and Abraham, for example. This is not the time that we can record in history because this is the time that happened before there was ever any history or any recording that went on. This is the time before time began. In fact, it says, in other words, the plan of salvation wasn't created at the time of Jesus or Moses or any of the patriarchs or, or anybody else or in, in the New Testament or anywhere else. You see, this plan of salvation existed before God said, let there be light. It already was in place at that time. That is difficult for us to see because you see, we see things as they happen. And we cannot see as God sees to see everything that has happened and will happen all in one time frame and look at it that way. Uh, to us, it would be like, you know, seeing the basketball game before it was ever played. You understand what I'm saying? It would be like seeing something that we couldn't have ever been able to see because it is going to happen in the future. But God has already seen it before any of that would happen. See, that's the way that God looks at it. See, God knew the plan of salvation before there was a creation. God didn't wait until, oh gosh, I didn't know Adam and Eve were going to do that. You know, I guess I'm going to have to have a plan of salvation now. He didn't say, you know what, I guess, what, I guess Jesus, you'll have to go. That was not the case. God knew before creation began that there was going to be a plan of salvation. So that there was never another means of salvation. Never another means of salvation. Keeping the law was never intended to give us salvation. There was never a concept that someone would perfectly keep the law that is in the scriptures and therefore they would get into heaven because of their own merits. There was never that thought that was ever there. And in fact, if there was another way of salvation and God chose to take his only begotten son and send him to the cruel death on the cross, it makes God a very sadistic and very unloving God. I mean, in reality, if you would take, you'd say, well, there's another way to do this. But I tell you what, I'm going to make you go through this anyway. 
That would be a very sadistic and a very unloving God. Now, for Jesus, who emptied himself, do you understand, when he came from heaven to earth, he emptied himself of, of uh, God-like uh, characteristics. In other words, he emptied himself of his omniscience. He's still God, but he chooses not to uh, access those sort of things. He will ask the question, isn't there another way? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, isn't there another way? And the very proof that there isn't another way is that God didn't give another way. Do you realize? He's asked, I'd like to do something other than this. Anybody would rather do something other than this. And, and there is no other way. And so Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And that's the situation. There was only one way of salvation. Now, in our own lives as human beings, we think everything is negotiable, but everything isn't negotiable. We think that God can do anything that he wants, but God cannot do anything he wants. God cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot tempt someone to, to sin. Not that he would want to in the first place, but what I'm trying to say is there are some things that God will not do because God perfectly and consistently acts like who he is. And when he acts, he acts in holiness because that is who he is. And he's always 100% of the time going to act like who he is. That's not true for us. There are times in our lives we don't act like who we are. We act something different. See, the world is trying to conform us into its image. And we sometimes can act like the world, but God will never, ever do this. Now, an illustration of this, I think, is, I think is given to us. And I think that many of the times we don't quite grasp this, uh, this story. It's a, it's a historical event, but <clears throat> we don't grasp the story. There's a, there's a story in the New Testament in which uh, the disciples get in the boat. When Jesus gets in the boat, Jesus goes to sleep. You know that story? They're going across the Sea of Galilee. And across the Sea of Galilee, a storm comes up. Now, I used to think that these guys were a bunch of, you know, you know, not too smart guys, you know, because I think, why would you get in a boat when there's a storm going on? And then one time I was over there in um, Israel and we got out on the Sea of Galilee and we're out there and water was like glass and it was just great. And, you know, we, we sang songs and, you know, read the scriptures and all that kind of stuff out on the Sea of Galilee. We come in, we go to this restaurant that is right there by the shore uh, where they serve St. Peter's fish. And within 20 minutes, maybe less than that, a storm came up. And I mean, a storm came over because that cold wind comes over the mountains and it comes down and it hits that uh, Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, 600 feet below sea level. It's very moist and warm air. Cold air hits it. Storm came up and the water was washing over the, the, the uh, stone barriers that were out there. It was just, I mean, almost instantly. And I said, hmm, I learned something today. These guys weren't such uh, dunderheads. They, they got in the boat when the water was like glass and they started rowing across and a storm came up like this. So what happens is they get, they get into this storm. Jesus is asleep. And remember, they, they wake him up and said, Lord, do you not even care that we're perishing? And you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, he says, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And you're, you're, a lot of people would say, well, shouldn't that be what they were, they were supposed to have said? Isn't that what was supposed to have happened there? Well, here's the story, folks. When was the plan salvation put in place before the beginning of time? What was the plan of salvation? Jesus Christ is going to die on a cross, not on a, in a boat. He's not going to die on a boat. And the disciples are going to do what? They're going to spread the gospel to the rest of the world. Okay, what were the chances that they were going to drown in that boat? Zero. Do you understand? Was it appropriate that they wake Jesus up? Yep. I would say, wake him up. Say, Jesus, we need you to calm this storm down. We're having a little trouble here. And Jesus said, okay, I'll, I'll calm the storm down. Peace be still. And that would have been it. But my point here being is, is that 
that incidence, that circumstance was not going to change the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation was going to remain in place exactly as it was. There was no chance that, that Jesus was going to sink to the bottom of the sea. It wasn't going to happen. So, so, it is God's plan of salvation. Now, who is Paul praising here? I mean, uh, or who is being revealed? Maybe I should say this. Well, clearly... In this scripture, in this, in this uh, verse 25, 26, he's, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about speaking of salvation. And see, but salvation is found in a person rather than an action. And this is very important for us to recognize. And that's why the scriptures will say, especially like in Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So my faith is placed in a person rather than simply in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand it was the death of Jesus Christ. It was his sacrifice on the cross that, that, that paid for my salvation. I, I got that. I understand that completely. But I don't put my trust in the act. I put my trust in the person. See, it was, it was these actions that saved us, but they could not have saved us if Jesus wasn't who he is if he was not the son of God, just somebody dying on a cross would not have done it for me. It's not the action. It is the person that is there. And so the admonition in the scripture is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again for salvation. You won't find it anywhere, anything else. Now, think of it this way. If I were a slave, okay, and somebody bought my way out of slavery... In other words, they bought it so that I could be a free person. Would I put my trust in the money that they spent or in the person who had paid for, the, for my uh, salvation, for, my, for uh, my freedom? See, I would put my trust in the person, not in the money. I put my trust in the person in this case. And so salvation is therefore, it is accepting the price that was paid, but it is more than that. It is creating a relationship with the one who paid the price. And those who will say that prayer of salvation, which by the way, Baptists are really famous for, or infamous for, I should say, because it's nowhere in the scripture. There's not a place in the scripture that says, pray for your salvation. You know, pray for you to, in other words, you're going to pray your prayer of salvation in order to be saved. But if you prayed that prayer, if you agreed with that person, if you said those words after that person said those words, and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're still just as lost as you were before you ever said those words. You see, you are just as lost, even if you get baptized or anything else, if you do not have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And you will never really understand what worship really is. You'll never understand what service really is. You'll never understand giving or growing as a Christian and growing up as a Christian or, or, or seeking after God and finding him and having a, a fellowship with him or forgiving other people or, 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 or loving other people that aren't very lovely as far as that goes and, and, and even telling people about who Jesus Christ is. That will always be something that is foreign to you if you do not have that relationship with him. And you'll be just as dead, and I mean dead to God because you, you're, you, you don't have a relationship with him. And it says, as you would be if you had never ever said that you believed. A lot of people, or not a lot of people, but I know at least one famous preacher says that salvation is easy. I don't believe it. 
I don't believe that salvation is easy. I, I, I believe that salvation is more than, I just don't have any objections to what you say. Salvation is more than saying, you know what, I can't find any real faults in what you're saying, so I guess that I'm saved because I agree with you. That's, that's not what salvation is. I believe that salvation is as difficult as marriage. Hear what I'm trying to say to you here. See, some people will agree to be married, but they have no idea what they're doing. And what they find out after they got married is, is this, uh, there's this other person hanging around all the time. And they don't know what to do with the person that's hanging around all the time. You see, marriage is a commitment to another person that so unites with that person that there should be no way that you could break that bond. That's the way that it should be. Marriage should be such a bond that there's no way that you should be able to break that bond. And, and, and the situation is you're not entering into a mutual benevolent society. In other words, I do some good things for you, you do some good things for me. And, that, and we're going to just keep doing good things for each other. And as long as we keep doing the good things, we're going to be, we're going to be okay with each other. No, that's not the way it is. Salvation is an agreement to follow the Lord Jesus in everything, even when it appears to end in destruction. It is that type of commitment. It is, it's not a prayer that is said. It's a line that is stepped across. You step across that line and say, I'm not, I'm not going back anymore. And I can't go back anymore because I've, I've got this bond that, that, that could not, a trust that could not be, uh, should not be broken. At least it could not be broken. And it's an act of love and it's built upon a relationship. You see, I have seen many people when they got married, they have that kind of relationship. I've seen lots of people that do not have that kind of relationship. I go to the hospitals um, enough, and while I'm there, I've had doctors ask me if I can talk to the family of somebody who's going to pass away. I mean, I don't necessarily say, hey, why don't you ask me to go tell a family that, that their family member is passing away? And I've had that happen. I mean, I've now had them even kind of anonymously, you know, I don't know the person, but I want you to go tell them, you're a preacher, you know what to say. And so I, I remember one time, I, was, I can tell you the hospital, I was at Baptist Hospital in Knoxville. And I'm, I'm there, and I'm, I'm 28, 29 years old, I'm, you know, and I don't know a whole lot. But, but what happened was, is that there's this couple, this old gentleman, he's on crutches, you know. He was probably 140, she's probably 135. I mean, because I mean, they're old, you know what I'm talking about, especially when you're 28, you know, you think that anyway. And, and uh, what happened was she was deaf. I mean, I knew that she was deaf. I mean, you could scream your lungs out in that hospital, and she couldn't hear you. And that man, in his, in his crutches and such, I knew that that man was taking care of her. He was bathing her. He was cooking for her. He was doing everything for that woman. He would take her to, to the doctor's appointments, whatever it was. And here he is on crutches. And so the doctors come to me and they say, can you tell him her organs are failing? That means she's got about 30 minutes left to die, to live until she dies. And I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And so I went over and sat down next to him and I started to explain to him. And I started saying, you know, her organs are failing. I, you know, he was nodding his head. He didn't understand. And finally I had to say, sir, your wife doesn't have very long to live. And I remember this man, tears in his eyes, tears in his eyes. He looked at me and he said these words, if she dies, I don't want to live another 30 minutes. And I thought that's the bond that we're talking about here. This is the bond, not because I want him to die too. That's not the issue. But he was so bound with her that he didn't want to live without her. That's the relationship we should have when we have that bond with Jesus Christ. 
I don't want to live without him. I've got such a bond, I don't ever want to live without him, not one step. So does this, when I say that we, we put it into a person, salvation is found in a person, does this isolate Jesus as the one who is revealed through salvation? I mean, are the God the Father and God the Holy Spirit also part of this salvation? And the answer is yes. Yes. You cannot reveal a person of the Trinity without revealing something of the whole of the Trinity. You cannot reveal the sacrifice of Jesus without revealing the love of the Father. And who is doing the revealing in the first place if it is not the Holy Spirit? When we think of three people, we generally, and three persons, what we generally think of is three people acting independently of each other without much collusion between each other. But when we talk of God and we talk the Trinity, it is not like that. That's why we say that there is God in three persons and not that we have three gods. It is a praise when I talk about salvation. It is a praise to the God who loved me, the God who died for me, and the God who led me to him. It is a praise of the Trinity that is in there. A few weeks ago, I flew on an airplane. Had three things in this airplane. Tell me which one I can do without. Had a pilot, had an airplane, and I had fuel. Which one would you like to do without? Do you understand what I'm trying to say there? I said, which one should I say, how did I fly? Did I fly by the fuel? Mm, yeah, I did have some fuel used up in there. Did I fly by the airplane? Yep, I did use the airplane. Did I fly by the pilot? Yep, I did that. I did all three of them. Do you understand when we talk about salvation, we're not talking about, we're not talking about Jesus alone. We're talking about the Trinity of God. So when is this revealed? So we have spoken of it being hidden in long ages And there was no one to reveal it to in those long ages because the Trinity of God already knew the plan of salvation at at that point. But the scripture says, and now has been disclosed. The word translated disclosed here or manifested in many other translations means to make visible. That's where we find the person of Jesus Christ made visible. That is where we find the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when it uses the word now that is in there, it meaning that it was not visible and it is now made visible in this. Again, we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. And now we're again talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many people, many people understood that Jesus was the Messiah before the cross. You can read the scriptures. You'll find that several of them called Jesus the Messiah. They may even call him the Son of God as far as that goes. They saw, though, that the Messiah was more human than it was that that person could be God. And any human can die for you. But what made the difference? Not that Jesus died for us, but that he came back. Every person can die for you. The rest of us aren't coming back. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? Is that the resurrection made it very visible, a very visible thing that happened. So wouldn't it seem that when people saw the resurrection that everyone would have believed in Jesus? Wouldn't that be true? But I can tell you this, and I can give you an illustration in just a second. People can explain away someone coming back from the dead if they want to. People can explain away someone coming back from the dead. Uh, I was at uh, a local hospital, and uh, I knew a story. I knew a story of a, a member of this church, and if you know this person, you probably know this story. 
Uh, and he had gone to another city because his sister had been put on respirators and such, and there had been no brain activity, I think for four days. I may be wrong about the four days, but I know that she had had no brain activity for several days. And what happened was they called the family to come in so that what could they do? They will, sit, they will come around the, the, the bed and they will, they will hold hands, they will pray, they will sing hymns. Uh, it's a beautiful thing that happens. And what they were going to do, they were going to unplug her from all the, the uh, machines and, you know, let her peacefully go. Well, they did that. And she didn't go. And in fact, in the middle of the night, she woke up and told them she was hungry. She told them she was hungry because they hadn't fed her in several days, about four days, I think, since they fed her. Because they were, you know, they're waiting for the, there was no brain activity or anything going on. So they, they did that. And then they, it was amazing. So what I did was is that I'm at this local hospital around here. And there's a neurologist talking to uh, us preachers. And I asked him the question. I said, I said, sir, how would you explain? Because he was talking about death and when death occurs. I said, how can you explain something that happened like this? And with this, uh, this lady and she's, you know, she's, uh, you know, they've got no brain activity. And you know what he said? He said, well, they obviously didn't know how to read an EEG. And I thought, you know, first, you know, understand this, understand. At that point, he disqualified himself as a scientist. Science is built on observation. He wasn't there. So first thing is he's no longer a scientist, in my opinion. Okay, so don't tell me about science because that's not the case. And secondly, that's incredibly arrogant, isn't it? The true answer is I don't know. That's the right answer. I don't know what happened. You know, and the situation is, though, I realize if you have decided that somebody can't come back from the dead, then... It doesn't matter what really happens, does it? You will explain it away. And people will do that even when they see a miracle. The scripture says that that through the prophetic writings that this story of salvation is going to be known to the nations. Jesus, very conservatively, and I was very conservative in this, fulfilled 300 Old Testament prophecies. That's a pretty good record, isn't it? 300, and I was very conservative. And I I thought of this. If the stars themselves will reveal it to the Magi, the scriptures themselves will reveal it to the nations. And that word for nations is the word ethnos. It really, we get the word ethnic from it. And what that means when you use it in the Greek, it means everybody that's not a Jew. It means everybody's going to understand it because what do they find? They find it in the scriptures themselves. When I was a campus evangelism coordinator, at Kilgore College, which is in East Texas, there was a librarian there and his wife. They came and they told me, for whatever reason, they told me their story of salvation. They said that they came from up north somewhere. They, I don't remember where they said, but they came from somewhere up north where nobody went to church on Sunday. And they noticed that there was an activity of people about the same time on Sunday mornings going out, you know, especially dressed up and all of that sort of thing. And, and they said, we want to find out where these people are going, what they're doing. And so they found out they were going to church. And they said, well, we need to find out what's going on with this going to church. So they said, what do you think we should do? And, the, and his, he and his wife had the conversation. He said, I think we should buy a Bible. And so what they did was they went out and bought a Bible. Now, there's two things that are amazing to me. One is that they shared the Bible. It's hard to do. And, you know, when you, each one of you wants to read it. And, and that's the case. The second thing is, is that if you didn't know anything about the Bible whatsoever, and it was just a regular book that was handed to you, where would you start reading? In Genesis. 
And you know, and you'd have to get through Leviticus and all the other stuff that is in there before you'd even get to the New Testament. And he told me that says, when we got to the book of John, and we're in the book of John, I mean, you have to realize what we're talking about here. They've read all of this till they get to the point of the book of John. And he said, and he, he said, I turned to my wife and said, what do you think we should do? And she said, I think we should trust in Jesus as our Savior. You know, believe it or not, people can understand the scriptures themselves and be led to the Lord through the scriptures by themselves. Years ago, when they were doing an evangelism program in mainland China, they were managing to sneak in copies of the book of John. Just the book of John, nothing but the book of John. And they'd get the, in Chinese, and they would get it, give it to the Chinese, and they would say, we'd give it to them, and three days later, they came back Christians. That's the way it was. They read it, they understood it, it's understandable. That's what we find. But here's the story, folks, is that you can find salvation in the pages of the Bible if you just read it. But you've got to read it in this. And so the question here is, is that how is, this, how is this salvation made visible for you? How are you going to be able to say, I praise the Lord? Well, I'll give you four ways. First, salvation is made visible at your salvation. You see, you see that Jesus is knocking on that door. He's knocking on that door and he's saying, I want to come in. And what is my story on that? What does God want to do with you? He wants you to walk with him. He's knocking on the door and he's saying, let's walk together on this. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This is what God wants to do. He wants to walk with us in this. And you, at your own salvation, you are changed. You're a different person because of your salvation. You trusted in Jesus. And you said, I'm not the same person as I was before. I have the Holy Spirit living in me right now. And you see that. It's very visible. Second way is, salvation is made visible at your death. At your death. Jesus will come for you. It says in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. At that moment of salvation, you will find that Jesus is there to take you with him to the place that he has prepared for you. And you won't be saying, I wonder if I'm saved right now. I know I'm saved right now. It'll be visible to you. Third, salvation is made visible at your resurrection. You don't get your resurrected body at that point. There is a time in which you will get that resurrected body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We will have a new resurrected body. Now, that's not going to be a surprise at all. We're going to have been with Jesus for some time, and we're just ready to get that resurrected body, and it's going to happen. You know, Paul talks about this. Paul talks about death and life as if he were going from one room to the other. You see, when he's arguing with himself in this, you find out in, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, that If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for, for, for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. In other words, I can't tell if I want to stay in this room or go in that room. And I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and to be with Christ, for that is far better. You realize he's not talking about it being something that is so incredibly traumatic. He's talking about 
If I go to be with Jesus, I'm here. But if I don't go with Jesus, I'm here. I'm, I'm with Jesus, but I, I would rather, you know, and he goes back and forth. And there's no waiting room to get in. But then fourth, salvation will be made visible throughout eternity. Throughout eternity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There will be an eternity of revelation of getting to know God greater than we've ever known God before. Now, why is this salvation revealed? It says to bring about the obedience of faith. For you cannot have obedience without faith. You cannot have obedience without faith. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And, and here's what it is, folks. And this is what, it, it's not necessarily that what we do is, is that we're saying obedience is, okay, I found something I'm supposed to be obedient in. I'm going to have to go do that. And then I'm going to wait around until I get something else. You see, godly obedience is a response to the character of God. Understand the character of God. And that may come with a direct command from God, and it may not come with a direct command. When you have the story in the New Testament of the, uh, the master who goes away, and he gives to some of his servants, so he gives one of his servants five talents, and then to, to, to one he gives two talents, and one he gives one talent. A lot of people say, well, how did they know what to do with that? Well, here was the story, folks. They understood the character of the master. They knew what to do with it in order to go out and and make more because of the character of the master that they knew. But one of the guys, he knew of the character of the master, but he didn't know the master. Do you understand the difference there? He knew what the master would do, but he did not know him like he should know him. And what did he do? He took the money and he hid it in the ground. About a half a million bucks. Think about that. And he waited for the master to come back and just give it right back to him. And that's why he stood condemned. Not because he didn't make enough money, but because he did not know the master. He knew about the character, but he didn't know the character. You see, our faith, our faith is a deepening relationship with God and is necessary to bring about the obedience of faith. And that relationship reveals the character of God. An obedience responds to the character of God. And that's why the person who has never met God cannot be obedient, even if they're doing the right thing. Do you understand? Obedience needs to know the one that you are being obedient to. Even a correct response will not be a volitional response because it will be accidental you see, it's been said that you could take enough monkeys and you could put them in a room and you can give enough typewriters or you can give enough word processors and finally one of the monkeys is going to turn out a completely perfect copy of War and Peace, which is about 1,225 pages, by the way. And they're saying that's happened, but would, should you give credit to the monkeys? No, because it's not a volitional act. It's an act of random typing is what it would be. It would be a act of random typing. Obedience is a volitional act because of the character of the person that you know and you know. You see, God wants us to have a relationship with him. God wants us to walk with him. We are not pets that he wants to play with. 
We are beings created in his image with which God seeks fellowship because he wants us to know him. He wants to reveal himself to us. And that's the richest life we can have. Charles Austin Miles said this song came to him in March of 1912. He was reflecting on John chapter 20, verse 1 through 18, which tells the story of Mary Magdalene meeting the risen Lord on the first Easter. You know these words well. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Folks, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. And I would say to you, are you living that Christian life? And is that Christian life a praise to the Lord? Is it a praise to the Lord? Pray with me, please.